here. You just didn't know it. Welcome. We're glad to have you with us. Welcome, parking lot people who I can't see through this brick wall. But I hear you somehow. And if you're visiting with us, uh, we are glad to have you. Looks like the Gregory's got some people in town. There's a whole row there, so praise God. And uh, I got to say, I think Nettie enjoys the song service the most when her boy is up here leading songs. That's good. So we are continuing our series, The Word Art of Peter. And uh, I call this series Living in the Shadow of a Hostile World because uh, there's persecution that is on the horizon. It's already taken place. It's going to happen more. And so Peter talks a lot about the way that we engage this world. And we've already looked at these different uh, ways that Peter, Paul does this, others. They are rewriting Greco-Roman household codes uh, in light of the gospel. Uh, Because the churches that Peter is writing to, they are under scrutiny. People are trying to figure out, okay, who are these Christians? What do they stand for? What are they about? Are they troublemakers? Are they dangerous? Are they a problem? And so Peter invites us to have really a kind of rapport, a behavior as disciples of Jesus that is above reproach. Because if we don't act with the right kind of heart, the kind of heart that Jesus displayed for us, we are going to create barriers for the gospel message, barriers to the mission of God. So we've looked at four different situations that affected Uh, the church, the churches that Peter writes to very personally. So those are uh, uh, the political environment of the land. How do you behave as a Christian? Even when your dialogue that you have, what the politicians are doing, what the people profess, what if that's not in line with your beliefs? There's a certain rapport that we are still called to have, a certain way we, we are supposed to behave. So we saw that from uh, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 13. And then we looked at an incredibly difficult circumstance. of, And it's the slavery uh, in the ancient world is different than kind of what we view slavery as historically. And yet, any way you slice it, it is just a horrible, ugly institution. But yet, we can, despite being in bad circumstances, we have a potential to shine the light of the Christ, to let the gospel be shared and known. So another uh, circumstance that he talks about is wives being submissive to husbands and husbands in the same way being considerate. So even in uh, the circumstances of a marriage relationship, so he's specifically talking about, um, he's trying to encourage these different people in different groups. So there were probably a lot of people that were slaves. Peter is giving special encouragement. Uh, There were a lot of women who were married to unbelieving spouses. He gives special encouragement. So there are specific circumstances that he's dealing with, and yet at the same time, it is encouragement and lessons for the whole body. So I'm not married. I don't have a wife. I don't have a husband. I don't, whatever, if you're saying, I'm not talking about myself right now. I'm talking about, yeah. I do have a wife, 
and I definitely do not have a husband. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate. So there's all of these different relational dynamics in all of these circumstances, and he just gives examples that are affecting his specific audience at that time. Ruth, I saw you la- see you laughing over there, and it's throwing me off my game here. All, all of these circumstances, let me say, they have the potential to be difficult. Do they not? Can you imagine difficulty from a political environment? Uh, can you imagine difficulty that would come uh, when you were in servitude to a job maybe or some kind of, and, and beyond that, uh, literally the circumstance of slavery that they're dealing with? Can you imagine that sometimes it is difficult in a marriage relationship? Uh, all of these circumstances have a potential to be very difficult. All of these situations have a temptation with them that when something hurts us, when something is done to us, when we perceive something being pushed on us, it's a temptation for us to respond in kind. It's a temptation for us to be vindictive or vengeful, to be heavy-handed, to bully, to dismiss. So Peter and Paul, they both expound upon Jesus' ethic of non-retaliation. Jesus' ethic of not responding in kind to uh, circumstances or people that have wronged you. And I gotta say, this is profoundly countercultural in 21st century America. Uh, and it sounds crazy to us that we would not respond in kind, that we would not give eye for eye and tooth for tooth. The thought of not retaliating, uh, it's, it's a hard thing for even a lot of Christians. Um, it is, in fact, though, the easy yoke because when we break a cycle of retaliation uh, it interrupts that in a way that uh, it does not get to continue but when we retaliate when we respond in kind evil for evil always escalates evil for evil always builds up into greater evil so let me say some words about what I'm not saying now about this because it's, it's easy for us to hear things uh, wrong. What Jesus' ethic of non-retaliation does not mean. It does not mean that Christians should not work to change institutional evil embedded in our culture. So the institution of slavery, that, that they don't address that directly, but they address, address a kind of heart that would make it impossible for this kind of institution to continue. So that doesn't mean, as Christians, we should not work to make changes um, for whatever the, the cultural evil, embedded evil is. So when Joy, uh, uh, Joyce Ice goes and, and marches around Planned Parenthood, Praise God for that. But their call of the gospel is to have a certain attitude and disposition for that. And we, we fight in prayer as Christians 
We're supposed to fight in prayer as well. And it doesn't mean that we, uh, because I have an ethic of non-retaliation, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't speak out when evil is being done. When something is clearly, lo- clearly wrong, we speak out against us. But we do it in such a manner that does not allow people to easily dismiss us. Oh, they're just as angry and as vengeful and as hateful as everyone else. Can't you see? Can't you see how angry they are? Can't you see how hypocritical they are? Uh, and this, uh, the ethic of non-retaliation that Jesus shares, the moving us beyond an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, it doesn't mean you forgive and forget and pretend like nothing is wrong because when we do this, it just allows evil to perpetuate. Have you ever heard that? You forgive and forget, forgive and forget. Uh, to try to forget the evil is done to you and pretend like it never happened is not only psychologically destructive, it's spiritually destructive as well, and it's a perversion of what Jesus taught. He's not actually saying this. And people will put this on you uh, because they will try to presume forgiveness on your half, and they take your Christian ethic and they try to rub your nose in it. You're a Christian, therefore, you have to forgive me. You have to pretend like this never happened. And we presume against the ethic of Christian forgiveness as a way to try to manipulate others. And people do this because they have shame. They're ashamed of their behavior. They're ashamed of what they've done. And anything that brings that to light and calls that out, uh, it's, it's impossible for people to bear that. But you know what? Love does not rejoice in evil. Love delights in the truth. The truth shines in the reality of circumstances. And without evil being called out, without evil being called out, you don't have the possibility of repentance in the same way. And without repentance, there can't be healing. So what what does this look like as an aside? Um, uh, so I heard a, a situation where uh, a church here locally, they had an administrator, uh, uh, I don't know, secretary, someone who was in charge of finances, and over time, they embezzled a large amount of that money that belonged to the church and used it, as stole it for personal use and gain. And uh, the church forgave that, but they still held up the consequences that needed to happen in a legal setting for justice to be done for the good of that person's soul. And that's the way they described it. And I think there's truth to that, which is interesting. So Jesus never asks us to pretend like you can't remember evil that's been done to you. Just pretend like it never happened. The non-retaliation that Jesus invites us to just means that we refuse to answer evil for evil. We don't give evil for evil. Uh, We are called to forgiveness. But that's a process that takes time, and it takes time with the Lord. And don't be ashamed of that taking taking time. Don't, Don't let people bully you with their words into forgiveness. Forgiveness has to be a special work of the Lord in the heart with the Holy Spirit. And you have to work toward forgiveness. And that's important to do. Uh, But yet, it's not forgiveness. uh, And it's not forgetting 
evil that's done, it, when it's pushed on you in a manipulative way, it allows evil to perpetuate, which is not what Christ calls it to, us to. But there are sometimes at the end of the day, we just have to trust God for justice. And there are some situations that have happened, even happened to some of us in this room. There is no justice in this life and this world for you. Either the person who's done this has gone on and died, either they are so far from the Lord and rebellious to him that they have no concept of the evil that they've done or the, you're not gonna get your justice in this life. And that means we have to trust God with our desire for vengeance. We have to give that to God. Trust that he is able to take care of your need for justice. And our place is to refuse to do evil to someone who has wronged us. So when we refuse to answer evil for evil, instead we are called to overcome evil with good. And what Peter is saying is no matter how bad your circumstances may be, you are always going to be in a position where you in some way are going to be able to overcome evil with good. If you have eyes to see, if you trust the Lord, if you have the patience to wait on him for his way. So Peter invites us into a variety of different circumstances where submission and humility are going to allow you to do some good even though the circumstances may or may not be horrible. And when we approach these different sick circumstances with the spirit of humility, it can actually open the door for the mission of God. It can open the door for the mission of God. So we talked about last week how humility makes all things better. And I just want to remind us of this. I won't camp out here too long. But this is important enough that I want us to be uh, thinking about this and remembering this. Your actions uh, are above reproach for a humble person. And when you're above reproach, they can't just dismiss you because you're being as nasty and ugly as everyone else. They have to deal with you and the reality of the, the situation as it is. And this allows the real issues to be the issues. It's, you're not distracted by... And it's not, so, so whenever people were going to throw out red herrings to get you chasing other, other things, a humble person, that cuts right through all of that, and they won't have the ammunition to throw, throw out to get you chasing the wrong rabbits. So humility, it breaks the cycle of retaliation. Oh, there's such a huge need for this, and it seems so hard and so impossible. Humility is therefore, it's always an act of faith. It's always an act of trust because humility is going to demand us to put our need for justice onto the Lord. We gotta have justice. We're built for it, but we have to have trust that God will give us the justice that we need. That we need. So humility, when, when bad things are happening to us, unjust behavior against you, when a, when a humble person is accused of some kind of in an unjust manner, the Lord <clears throat> shines a spotlight on that somehow. And it draws attention to the ugliness of the institution or the behavior uh, in a way that wouldn't happen otherwise apart from humility. 
So humility actually, <clears throat> excuse me, it opens and doesn't close doors for evangelism. And then I add this one. Humility is able to speak truthfully about circumstances. A humble person is able to speak about the reality of the circumstance. Whether or not I'm able to forgive at this point, I don't forget because the reality is this has happened and we have to deal with this. Humility deals in reality. Humility deals in the truth. And I think that's important for us to remember as well. So for the disciple of Jesus Christ, your freedom is not dictated by your circumstances. Whether you're a slave, whether you're uh, married to an unbelieving spouse, whether there's trouble in your marriage, your circumstance does not limit your access or defer your access to have real freedom. That comes from what Jesus Christ has done for us, for us and our, on our behalf. So what Peter is describing, really, it's the power of humility in the Christian life. I, I know maybe I'm beating a dead horse a little bit about this, but as I spent time with 1 Peter this week, I kept just, see, this letter is dripping with humility and all of the aspects of humility that are tied, <coughs> tied to uh, humility has a sister named love. And <coughs> what Peter is doing, what he's gone through, it's just all over the pages of what he's writing. And so as I sat holding this text this week, praying for the Holy Spirit's help to, you know, illumine this, help me understand it, I couldn't get past humility. I had to spend the time, and I believe I was called to do this this morning, we got to spend time looking at humility. And uh, I think humility is going to be what is going to make us or break us as a community of faith. It's going to be what makes us or breaks us as a church that's going to be able to have irresistible influence in the community around us. It's going to come back to our humility. So the power of humility in a Christian life, it's a power that can uh, save an unbelieving spouse. It's a power that can call back unbelieving children. It's a power that can heal a marriage. It's a power that can topple institutions of evil and slavery. It's a power that can change the political environment of our land. It will turn us into a church of irresistible influence. That's the power of humility. That's the value of humility in God's eyes. A humble person is always going to be carried by the Lord and shielded from evil in ways that are inconceivable to our secular world. But most of all, I look at the power of humility and its ability to build relationships and nurture community. A community characterized by humility, it's an attractive community. A humble person is an attractive person. This is why Peter connects humility with beauty in his letter. So let's just refresh on that. Humility is tied to true beauty. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. 
So humility is what a gentle and quiet spirit is. So I thought about it in terms of all of these connections. I keep coming back to humility, and this, all of these words, the word art that Peter uses, the things that he is describing, it all relates to humility. So I thought, what are these, what are these connections? What are all of these? So I call them the little sisters of humility. What are, what are some of the little sisters of humility that we've looked at so far? Humility is tied to submission. Submission and humility, there's a co- correlation there, a connection. We've read about that in chapter 2, 13, verse 18, 3, 1, and verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. You, we see that humility is tied to good deeds, 1 Peter 2, 12. Humility is tied to purity and reverence, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Humility is tied to beauty because beauty is tied to gentleness in a quiet spirit. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4 talks about that. So a humble person. A humble person is able to love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. I'm free to do that because of humility, because of submission. A humble person fixes their eyes on Jesus who bore our sins so that we can die to sin and live for righteousness. Those are Peter's words from chapter 2, verse 24. We fix our humble person. is not so much concerned about the circumstances. It's not like we ignore the circumstances. But we are so Christ-focused that it changes the reality of the situation around us. And a humble person remembers, I am a sheep that is going astray. You're a sheep that's going astray as well, but I'm a sheep that's going astray. And so that fixes our eyes on Jesus, the only one who is not a sheep going astray. So now in chapter 3, verse 8, Peter gives us more of this word art to understand a heart of humility. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Be compassionate and humble. I had to really unpack all of these because all of these are terms that we would be tempted to just run right past Yeah, 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 that's good. Harmony, sympathetic, love, compassion, humble. Great stuff. Good jobs. Good job, Calvin. Would you get on to the point? What is the, speed this up a little bit. Come on. We've got lunch plans. We've got things to do. But there's so much treasure here just in these specific words that Peter chooses. So he's describing more sisters, more little sisters of humility. Harmony. Harmony has a a big sister named Unity. Sympathy. Brotherly love. Compassion. All of these help grow our humility. And humility helps grow all of these things. So let's unpack some of these words a little bit. Harmony, the first one, it literally means same thinking. Having the same kind of thinking in your mind. Harmony of thought, it's 
a vocabulary that's similar to what Paul uses in Philippians 2.2 when he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Sympathy describes an understanding disposition towards someone. If I'm able to sympathize, I am able, the way we say it colloquially, is uh, I'm able to walk in your shoes, or I'm standing in your shoes. I'm seeing things through your eyes in that particular circumstance. That's what he's describing by sympathy. Uh, Brotherly love or sisterly love um, that is from that word Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia, love for your brothers and sisters. It's a growing emotional connection with each other. We felt some of it yesterday out there at the Heralds, uh, digging around in the mud. We're so in love with Jesus that in Jesus we discover the beauty of each other. That's what we're called to. Brotherly love happens organically with people who are infatuated with Jesus Christ, who are in love with Jesus. We discover each other. We keep finding each other in Jesus. Uh, Compassion, then. Compassion is a deep movement of heart. Uh, We anchor the emotions in the heart as modern, you know, not in the biological heart that's beating in your chest, but we talk about the heart as the seat of emotions. Well, for Greeks, their seat of the emotions was in the bowels, in your guts. So I feel it in my heart, I would say. Uh, They would say, there's a quiver in my liver. I don't know what they would say. There's fluttering in my bowels. As a modern man, I think something different when I hear fluttering in my bowels. But uh, anyway, I digress again. Boy, I'm falling apart all over the place this morning. So anyway, they say it's the intestines is the seat of the emotions. Your compassion is like, maybe we could say it's a gut feeling is a good way to describe it. When I have compassion for someone, we know what, that, that has a physiological Expression and we feel it. Emotion so strong in a situation that we feel it. A tightening in our chest. Maybe we describe it as our heart. A gut feeling. There's something there that moves us in love on behalf of another. And that is compassion. Compassion is such a strong feeling of affection that it moves your intestines. It moves your heart. You feel it in your chest. Um, And finally, Peter uses this uh, unique word to describe humility. Uh, And I need to talk about this a little bit because humility was not a virtue in Greco-Roman culture or society. It's not a virtue in our our culture either. Uh, Much like us, Greco-Roman society was image-based. It's all about saving face. Uh, Much like us, Greco-Roman society was highly competitive. It was a society that's boastful. 
It's obsessed with image and the way you look. Uh, it's an arrogant culture. It's a shrewd culture. The only people who were humble in the ancient world were those who were forced to be humble. The slave who you have under your boot, the wife who you are dominating, the children who you are ruling over, the ones who are forced to be submissive. So the reason that the cross of Christ is described as a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, foolishness to Gentiles, is because of the humility of the crucifixion. It's foolishness. Who in the world would ever want to be humble? Humility was regarded as a sign of weakness, a, a kind of shame. Humility is an inability to defend your own honor. That's the way they understood it. That's the way our culture largely understands humility. And yet in the radical word art of Peter, he uses the word humility to invite people into voluntary submission. We choose submission. We choose non-retaliation. We choose to answer evil with good. Peter uses this word humility, the one that he uses in 1 Peter, it's in contrast. It is the opposite of boastfulness. It is the opposite of self-aggrandizement. Look at me. It's all about me. It's the opposite of this. It's not clamoring for this. And while a spirit of humility, it may be out of step with our culture, humility is the very spirit of Jesus Christ himself. Your Holy Spirit is characterized by humility. Humility. Jesus Christ had great humility. We throw it away like it's not valuable somehow. Like who could actually live like this? And yet we need to focus on this, brothers and sisters, because of the power humility has, the value humility has with God the Father. If we get humility and we get it in our spirits, God moves in power. He moves powerfully in response to humility. It has great value in God's eyes. So the ancient prophets, prophets, they said of this one who will be Messiah someday, this one who's coming, he will be a man of humility. Isaiah said it this way, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's what Jesus is like. That's the heart of humility of Jesus Christ. You see, why does our Savior come to us with such humility? 
And I think about this, but I think you have a soul. The soul is the deepest part of you. Apart from whatever image you're managing, apart from there is a reality of who you are as God sees you. We try to manage our image with other people, the people all around us. I've got it together. We do that in this assembly, which is, is a crime. <laughs> I, I've got this life. It's not, and we hide our hurts. And that's because our soul is our deepest part of that. And we know what people will do. We know the evil people are capable of. Every one of us have a, a soul. And all of us, our souls are very shy. We hide our souls. We keep our souls back from other people, from each other. And our souls are shy. The deepest part of ourself we keep hidden. And yet it is the humility and gentleness of Jesus that helps coax our hiding souls to come out. We all have these wounds on our souls. We are all bruised reeds. We got these bruises on our souls. We hide those things away. And it's the humility of Jesus that we begin to show those a little bit. We begin to show him the bruises on our souls, the wounds of our souls. We don't do this in the noise. We don't do this in the big, we do it in the soft, quiet places with a still small voice that's able to call our brokenness out to give us words of hope and healing. Jesus says this about himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am gentle and humble in heart. Do you ever wonder why God is so hidden? Why God isn't just, we all would love some more fireworks in the sky, Holy Spirit fireworks, whatever way they come. Do you ever think about why God is so hidden? Because God is so humble. He's always near to us, but He doesn't force Himself on us. He's always saying, Come to me. He'll go 99 miles, He'll be within reach, but there's always some part of you that has to come. There is always some part of you that has to trust that has to take that final step, that has to embrace Him standing right there, that has to seek Him and search for Him and find Him, it always is going to take initiative on your part. And that's because of the humility of God that He invites us to have a role in everything that He is going on. He doesn't overwhelm us. He doesn't force us. He just keeps calling to us and inviting us. Come to me. Come to me. God is humble. 
and he wants to be found by us. But pride will always blind us to humility. We have so much pride. We walk right past God in our pride constantly. Pride will always be blind to humility. Human pride will always blind us to God because God is humble. You see, the, the center of all reality, we are not here because of coincidence. We're not here because of an accident. The center of all reality is a heart of love and submission. The center of all reality is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal, eternally in love with each other, eternally submitting to each other. The center of the universe is a triune heart of love, and that heart of love creates. That heart of love invites, it invites us to be humble like God himself is humble. We're invited to participate in the humility of God. And that's why Paul includes this early Christian hymn in his letter to the Philippians. You know what you should be like? You should be humble like our God. You should be humble like Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's this heart of love and submission of Jesus. The heart of a servant. And we all know what follows this. This is the kind of heart that leads to resurrection power. That leads to the overcoming of every barrier. One of the things I've loved about our study of Peter on Wednesday nights is that while Peter has some glorious moments. Uh, more than any other person in the Bible, uh, Peter has spectacular failures. Open mouth, insert foot. Story of Peter's life, right there. God works with us, not in spite of our histories, but through our histories, including our own brokenness and our own mistakes, all of those wounds on our soul that we're so shy about. Peter made all kinds of mistakes, but Peter had the humility that he needed to repent. Peter had the humility he needed to cry and weep over his own sin. And now, after years of working with the Holy Spirit, he writes this letter, this letter he calls 1 Peter, going out to these different churches, and it is literally, if you were to wring it out, it's dripping with the sweetness of humility. It's just, it's all over these pages. I couldn't hardly get through these verses this week. If we take the time to study it, we can learn a lot 
just from the word art, the words that Peter chooses to use. In verse 9, he says this, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. When we trust God, when we put it into his hands, when we have the humility to do that, God goes to work. And what do we expect? One way or another, it's coming. We might think it needs to be something else and needs to come quicker, and it's, but when you put it in God's hands, we are going to inherit a blessing from that. And then he quotes the Psalms. You know, Peter, he's always in the Old Testament, this guy too. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You want to make God your ally? Turn to him in humility. You see, we live in the shadow of a hostile world. But we're not here alone. We're a part of a community. God is not absent. Holy Spirit is not done working. And we are called on to do what it takes to build unity within our church family. And that is why humility is so important. If we are to humble ourselves enough to go deeper in our relationships and our love, you know, our church is going to be better equipped to face whatever Eugene Springfield is going to throw our way. We get some weird curveballs thrown our way sometimes by this culture. I'm telling you, I didn't understand it all moving out here from Tennessee. There's some weirdness here. We have everything we need as a community of faith to not just survive but to thrive. And it's going to come down to our love and our humility and our relationships with each other. So Dylan, you can come on up. So when I say humility, for an American, for even many Christians, we think of humility as continuous cringing, cultivating a low self-esteem and a low self-image. We think of humility as taking perverse pleasure in always being forgotten, always being unnoticed, always being taken for granted. Oh, I love being a doormat for everyone to wipe their feet on me. But humility, as what Peter is describing, humility meant a way of seeing other people as being valuable in God's eyes. Humility means valuing other people. So you think about pride as the opposite of humility. There, if there is a master vice, it is pride. Pride makes every sin worse. Pride makes every vice worse. It pushes it further on. But if there is a master virtue that makes every virtue better, it is humility. And humility is valuable because it helps grow love. <coughs> Excuse me. 
So pride, you think of it is, it's not that I think too highly of myself. It's that I value others too lowly. Humility is dealing in reality, remember? So it's valuing others. It's valuing yourself. And most of all, it's valuing God. So last two slides. Humility promotes unity. And humility promotes love. (coughs) Excuse me. So humility, we talked about all these little sisters. It also has some big sisters. Unity and love. Love grows where there is humility. Unity grows where there is humility. Think about every virtue there is. Humility makes it better. Despite our particular circumstances, when we commit ourselves to humility, it builds Christian community. The strength of our community is going to become more and more important as the world turns against us as we live in a post-Christian culture. That's why little things like playing in the mud, planting trees, this can save us as a church. This can heal us as a community of faith. Uh, Dan and Donna, they're fun people to get to know. You know, they're not new Christians. They've been in the Lord's church for a long time. You know, Dan was in the military, if you don't know that. He's got some stories to go with that. He would be away for a long period of time, uh, and Donna would be there, and uh, they have stories about the way Christian communities surrounded them. So they're mature disciples in that regard, and they've grown through a lot of things. That's why we're so thrilled to have them back here. But whatever they face and all the stories that they've had in their life, you know, this, this chapter with the fire taking and burning down their house, all of that, the trauma of all of that, I guarantee as mature and as wonderful as this couple uh, are, they are going to remember what happened yesterday. We get to be that for each other through humility. So we're out there in the mud. We're having a great time doing it. Uh, There's lots of conversation. We've been starved for fellowship. So we're having fellowship. We're sharing. Uh, We share food with each other. Um, Some people planted their trees a little bit crooked. We helped rectify that situation. So we had big helpers and we had little helpers. And we had a lot of fun. You know, this might seem too humble to even mention, but I'm telling you, what is going to make or break us as a church is this kind of stuff. It's not just the teaching we listen to. It's not just the words that come out of the preacher's mouth. It is the way we live this together. Humility is clarity of vision. Seeing God, myself, and my neighbor as God sees. Humility helps me see my own needs and my own limitations. It allows me to be compassionate and realistic about my neighbor's brokenness and their needs. I'm not... It's not about image management. It's not about envy or comparison or anything like that anymore. Humility allows us to patiently trust in God for all the answers we need. I'm telling you, there's a lot here. I'm telling you, this is treasure, humility. I'm telling you, there's not a lot of churches that even focus on this or talk about this, but I believe it's gonna be our make or break. I believe that. And so the invitation is, 
we're going to keep unpacking that. And uh, whatever needs you have to put on Christ in baptism for the prayers of this church, uh, we're going to give you an opportunity. You can come and share those with me as we stand, and Dylan leads us in a song together.